Uh, good morning, friends. So lovely to see you. Uh, if you're online, good morning to you. My name is Brendan. And uh, we sang a song, and one of the lines says, my melody is my weapon, or something like that, or my weapon is my melody. And I thought, that's quite funny, because I sing really badly. And I'm just wondering how my melody is a weapon. And I'm thinking, maybe I sing so badly that I scare the enemy. <laughs> but thank you, guys. Eh? Thank you, Colin, for hosting us and leading us so well this morning. Uh, we have the privilege of starting a series called Exodus. Uh, it's 11 weeks, and we're preaching it as a team. And uh, what I love about a team is that you should see um, different styles come out. And the beauty of a team is that uh, uh, the, the different styles bring about a wholeness. And so some people are narrative in their style. Uh, some people are uh, expository in their style. And the, the glory of a team is that it's not dependent upon one person. And uh, I'm so looking forward to a team preaching these series over the next 11 weeks. And so uh, the word exodus means to draw out or to deliver. And if you actually look to my left and my right, I feel like one of those air, airline hostesses. <laughs> the exits are there and there. And that's what exodus means. It means to be drawn out or to go out. And uh, Possibly one of the greatest uh, rescue acts uh, that we've ever known in history is the Exodus story. Uh, we have some, uh, in more recent times, there's a picture on the screen of uh, Dunkirk. And uh, there, 340,000 people were rescued. Absolutely no chance of surviving and uh, uh, British Navy, together with fishermen, uh, sailed uh, their vessels across and drew 340,000 men out uh, to fight again. Uh, the next picture is actually a picture of uh, survivors from the Bismarck in the Second World War. It's a German uh, warship, and um, it sunk. And uh, the um, HMS Dorsetshire um, went alongside and picked the survivors out the water. It's a cold Atlantic, and so you would probably have 20 minutes before you would die. And so every single one of those men there were doomed to certain death unless that ship actually came alongside and drew those guys out the water and brought them into safety. And the final picture is a more recent one. Uh, it's a picture of... Uh, people in an airplane in Afghanistan, and so there 120,000 people were rescued, uh, and you can see that plane is just packed to the brim, uh, there's no business class in that plane, um, and those people were rescued, they were drawn out uh, from a, uh, a very harsh rulership in the Taliban, and the reason why they wanted to leave is because they knew what life would look like if they stayed. And so really the story of Exodus is a story of a nation living under great brutality and they cry out to God for help. And God hears their cry and raises a leader to rescue the nation. 
He rescues them from the most powerful nation in the world. And then he begins to show them how to live well as a husband, as wives, as landowners, how they manage their income or their crops, how they confess when they mess up. And then he says this most beautiful line. He calls them his most treasured possession. You know, some couples um, have got terms of endearment. Snooky, cook sister, <laughs> special, my princess. I don't know, you've all got your own. You're looking at each other. And I just love God's term of endearment towards Israelites. He's my, my most treasured possession. Could, could you imagine hearing those words of God actually speaking to you? You are my most treasured possession. And that's what he says about this nation. And he leads them out. He rescues them. He provides for them. Cares for them. And you know what they do? They consistently kind of forget about him. And, and look to other things to find their safety and their security and their food. And so it's not a once-off rescue. They continually need to be rescued. And it's a little bit like us. It's such a great book because it mirrors our need to be rescued from habits that enslave us. It mirrors our need to be shown how to worship God in a family. And I love the testimonies that came out this morning. It was like, hey, this is how we do life together. This is how we worship God together. It mirrors our need to be shown how to live before a great God. And then it mirrors how we need to actually copy God in his desire to rescue all nations so that they too could be his most treasured possession. That's the mission. That's the reason why we exist. So my daughter, Emma, who was here, um, she says, Dad, like, what do you do all day? Uh, I, know, I see you going to work, but like, actually, what do you do? So I said, what I do is that I partner with Jesus to make the world better. She goes, huh. The next day, she makes me lunch, and she posts a little yellow sticky, you know, this post-it thing, says, Dear Dad, Good luck with partnering in, with Jesus in making the world a better place. <laughs> and um, that's essentially our mission. Whatever the sphere of influence that God places us in, he calls us firstly to hear the cry of the community and then partner with him and a community to see people reconnected, reconciled, shown how to worship God how to enjoy him forever. And so that's a, there, there is a, a beautiful part of Exodus actually shaping our lives. In summary, we can say that God rescues his people for the purpose of them worshiping him. It's funny, thousands of years later, theologians got together and said, hey, what's the purpose of man? And uh, it's up on the screen. They come up with the Westminster Shorter Catechisms, and it's uh, the chief end of man is to glorify God and worship him forever. That's the purpose of Exodus, is to draw people out, to glorify God and worship him forever. And so let's read Exodus chapter 1. It'll be up on the screen. Can we pray? Father, my words I don't change anyone. 
my best words can't change, but Lord, you, through the power of your Spirit, are able to change us. And boy, do we need changing, oh God. And so come and do a great work over these 11 weeks in our lives. I pray that the testimony would be, Lord, that we would encounter you and that we would be changed. Amen. Exodus chapter 1 says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Sibion, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Natali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if the war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Fittim and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. There's some words that jump out there for me as to the condition of this nation. The word afflicted, the word oppressed, the word dealt ruthlessly, the word slave, the phrase made their lives bitter. And so when you think about slavery, basically it's, it's treating people without any dignity or worth. It's saying to them, hey, let me show you how much value. You're just a unit of labor to me. To enslave someone is to violate the very essence of who they are. It's to take away the core dignity of someone. And to enslave someone, to make someone your slave, says something about you. It says that something about you is corrupted. Something's gone wrong. And so we're getting a picture of a society that's lost its humanity. And the reason why I'm saying that is because I think it's starting to mirror the, the, the parallels of Exodus and the realities of when we live today are a lot more closer than what we think. We think, oh, that happened so long ago, you know, Egypt, Pharaoh, those type of deals. We saw the cartoon. But we really are dealing with a very brutal society, a society who've lost their humanity. It gets a little bit worse. Let's read from verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one was named Sipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew woman and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. 
And so I said to you that there's something gone wrong with society when you move to slavery. There's something corrupt there. It gets worse. They move from slavery to murder or genocide. What moves a man to hate so much to want to kill a nation? To kill baby boys. And we must place ourselves in the story. Uh, we can get so familiar with things where we get inoculated to the brutality of actually what's happening here. We've heard it so many times. Oh, we know the story of Exodus. This is a brutal society. Imagine if our president declared every person who declares himself Christian, if they've got a baby boy, that baby boy is to be killed. Um, and we're a family with people who are pregnant and recent babies. Can you imagine those of you who have got a boy? Can you imagine that being happening to you? And the reason why I'm saying that is because um, we, have to place our, we, have to, we have to place ourselves in the story, not just observers from something at a distance. And when we begin to place ourselves in the story, we see the magnitude of wickedness that's really going on. Peter says that Satan is like a lion seeking to destroy. The very nature of Satan is to work in the lives of men and women towards great wickedness. And so Moses, who wrote this in chapter 1, he's giving us a picture of what darkness looks like. He's showing us what happens when Satan rules in the hearts of men. There is no limit to their wickedness. Let's carry on reading in chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his, as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took, him, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put a, the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And so in this chapter one, great wickedness, we get chapter two, uh, something's happening. Some, there's some response to this wickedness. And uh, the response is of a couple who've had a baby boy. And some translations say, he's a beautiful boy. Every parent thinks his or her child is beautiful. And, um, you know, sometimes babies come out not so beautiful. <laughs> but mom and dad, oh, what a beautiful boy. <laughs> this parent's just like you and I. Beautiful boy. They know what now needs to happen. This boy will be thrown in the river. Can you imagine the trauma of this family? They decide that uh, they're going to do something. When we have a baby, we celebrate. We post it on Facebook. We do everything to let people know it's a boy. We, we publish something in the paper. You know, you, like you read in the paper. Brennan and Tash are so excited to announce the birth of Nathan. Thank you to doctor and, your name and the nursing staff for helping us. We're grateful to God. For those of us who are a little bit older, most of you look at me so strange. You put in the paper? Like, who does that? It's a joyous celebration. It's a boy. Not in this case. In this case, 
They have to hide. You imagine hiding a child. And then after three months, they cannot hide him because there's a boy and he's crying. Okay, what are we going to do? What about we get a basket and we put him in the river? What are they, what are they hoping for? Well, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23 says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful and were not afraid of the king's edict. Uh, so there's two emotions going on here. There is the fear of a nation under the incredible brutal power of what's happening, and then there's this thing called faith. And it says this family leaned into faith. Somehow they decided, somehow they had the courage to go against the most powerful nation and say, we're going to do something to see this boy live. And um, without an over-application, I think that gets pretty close to some of the realities that we're living in, the realities of fear. And it is real, different kind of context, but there, there's a lot of fear that's going around. And I think this is so helpful just to say it's possible to take that which we fear and to place it in a basket and to put it into the river of God's grace and say, God, my marriage, my finances, my relationships, my future, my, the health of my family, the struggles of my kids, Lord, those things are making me fearful. I'm actually putting in this basket, Lord. I have no way, Lord, of sorting out this problem, but my hope and my trust and my confidence is in you. So we see a beautiful picture of faith. And I think you're going to see that over and over again in the message. Let's carry on reading Exodus chapter 2, verse 5. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for him, and I'll give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. And so we get a picture of the response of faith. The boy is rescued, and it's kind of like a little mini exodus. He is rescued out of the water by Pharaoh's daughter. And so uh, we get something of a picture of God starting to work in the midst of great wickedness. And so what's really funny is that he's not only rescued, but he's reconciled um, to his mom. I'm imagining Miriam, his sister, going like, Hey, I think I can help you. I've got an idea. I know someone who can take care of this boy. She calls her mom. Her mom gets paid to be a mom. I think, like, there's something of God's sense of humor 
in amidst this great trauma and wickedness. So he's raised by his mom and then handed over and then given the best education on planet earth. God is raising a rescue and he's using the resources of the very people who want to destroy this nation. You have to see God's sense of humor in this process. Pharaoh wanted all the boys dead and in the economy of God, a baby boy who will eventually rescue the nation is raised up, trained, and equipped by the very man who hates the Israelites. So for some of us, we often sense that God is absent. Travis got up and said, I actually have sensed God as absent. We can't see his hand in our lives. It feels like the pressures of life will overwhelm us. And this story gives us courage because it clearly demonstrates that God is working for good. One of my favorite scriptures is this from Joseph when he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. It's a beautiful scripture. Chapter 2, as we move on down the storyline, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptians and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he stood by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flocks. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When he came home to their father rule, he said, How is it that you've come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he might eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and called his name Gershom. For he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. And what we're starting to see is God choosing a man to partner with him in rescuing a nation. And the qualities of this man are qualities of a shepherd. There are three shepherding moments, or a shepherd wants to care for, protect, provide, rescue, lay down your life. The first one is he sees an injustice and he steps in. Uh, the second one, he sees two Hebrews fighting and he steps in. And the third one, he sees men oppressing women and he steps in. But he steps in in a way that is still mostly his own ability, his own flesh. And I think there's something of what you'll see in this journey of God maturing Moses, and indeed he does that us. He sees our heart to want to serve and to want to help and to want to rescue those around us, but he wants to mold us 
so that our dependency to work for him is not based on our own ability and our own giftings, but entirely on, upon him. And that's the journey of leadership. There's no shortcut to that process. God will not make any exceptions. He uses men and women that are completely yielded to him and have surrendered their talents and abilities, however wonderful they are, to him. And that process is long and slow and beautiful. And he wants every single one of us to enter into that process. So if you're saying, hey, it seems tough, it seems so difficult, it seems like God's not with no, it's just God dealing with you in that process. Good news. Let's carry on reading Exodus 2.23. During those days, many, many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And we're getting to the most wonderful part of this text and you can see I'm reading a lot of text and I think it's healthy just to actually read through a lot of scripture. Uh, Moses reveals two aspects of God's character. Firstly, the aspect of a God who hears. And the Psalms is filled with people crying out, hey God, can you hear me? Where are you? Why will you not answer me, Lord? There's a story of a, in the Bible of a lady who could not fall pregnant. Um, her name's Hannah. And uh, not only could she not fall pregnant, but because of it, she was living in great shame and disgrace. And she cries out to God. And I love, it's one of my favorite text because it says God heard and God remembered and gave her and the remembrance was her receiving a child not, not just remember there is, a, there is an action behind that remembrance and it's the giving of a child and so she calls his name Samuel and Samuel means God hears you know it's like a reminder you know like those promise keeping boxes that we sometimes have on the side of our bed hey uh Every time she says, Samuel, come here. Samuel, won't you do this? It's like, God hears, God hears, God hears, God hears. And uh, I love this passage in Scripture because it says to you and I, God hears. Not sometimes, not long. If you've got your act together, just we serve a God who hears. How would your life change if you really believed God hears your prayers? How would your life change if you really believed God hears your prayers? And God heard and he remembered, and he remembered a promise that he made to Abraham. And really the promise was, that through you I will be a blessing to all nations and that know for certain that for 400 years your people will be afflicted but at the right time I will bring them up. And what we're starting to get into the story of Exodus is something of the right time, God breaking in. So in summary, Chapter 1 clearly shows the extent of wickedness. 
And you might say, Brendan, uh, that was a long time ago. We don't live in those times, but I think we do. There's a man called Eli Wiesel, Wiesel, Jewish man. He wrote a book called Night. I think it won, uh, is it the Pulitzer Prize? I don't know, what is the prize for books? Pulitzer, Pulitzer Award. And uh, the book was about his experience of him and his family going into a Nazi concentration camp. And so he writes in the book, he said, as a young man, I could not believe that humans were being burned in our time. I thought the world would never tolerate such crimes. The world, the world, it's not interested in us. Today, everything is possible, even the crematorium. The Afghanistan crisis that we see, and that's just one around the world. People fleeing because they know the wickedness of the new regime. I think we are living in very, maybe not our immediate environment, but the world that we're living in uh, is very similar and parallel. And uh, why are you talking so much about this? is because the Exodus story brings hope to this context. It's not like, well, we're just going to survive till we get to heaven. The Exodus story is about a God who is able to rescue in, and deliver in the face of great wickedness. And he rescues and delivers because he wants to bring all nations, and more applicable, the people around you, into a relationship with him and call them his most treasured possessions. So we see really two kingdoms or two forces within chapter 1 and chapter 2. Chapter 1, the reality of life under Satan's rule. And secondly, a glimpse into the reality of life under God's rule. The one is brutal. The one is my most treasured possession. The story of Exodus gives us courage because it will clearly show the greatest wickedness that Satan can trump up cannot compare to the power of God to deliver people from Satan's grip. I'll say that again. The greatest wickedness that Satan can trump up working through man cannot compare to God's power to deliver people from Satan's grip. And the signs you'll read about in weeks to come, the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the provision supernaturally of food and water, God is able to rescue and deliver. In the story of Exodus, you'll see God raise up a man called Moses. But we have a better man, and his name is Jesus. And his aim was to destroy the work of the enemy. And the death and resurrection of Christ demonstrate once and for all the power of God and God's desire to rescue and bring into covenant relationship all nations, and in particular, the people that God has given you influence over to worship and to enjoy. And so we're going to partake in communion. 
And I would like for you just to, we're going to do it together, if you don't have uh, your communion. Uh, Just raise your hand, we'll get one to you. Thanks. If you're watching online, I'd love it if you are able to join us. I see those hands. just have the bread ready and the juice and we're going to partake it in together here's what's going to happen I'm going to read a uh, scripture there's one more hand at the back there this is so much fun Um, I'm going to read a scripture and then I'm going to ask you to examine your heart as the scripture says and then I'm going to lead us through a prayer Um, as we um, participate uh, together. Two scriptures. The first one, Colossians 1 verse 13 says, He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Word of God says that we have gone through a very similar journey to Exodus, we've been delivered, we've been drawn out from the kingdom of darkness. It's exactly the same imagery, chapter 1, into chapter 2, the kingdom of the beloved Son, the one who loves you. And as we partake in communion, um, I'm going to read Paul's instruction to the church um, to help us. But it, it will be on the screen, 1 Corinthians 17. Um, sorry, 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen to 30. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you came together, it's not for the better, but for the worst. For in the first place, when you came together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that, on, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he given thanks, he broke it and says, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after the supper, saying, this is, cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you'll proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, he will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who drinks, eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are 
weak and ill, and some have died. And so we've been given this beautiful sacrament or practice to remember what Christ has done. But Paul says, before you do that, take a moment to examine the past week and just say, hey, Lord, is there just something that I've said and done that I've just hardened my heart to and I haven't sorted out? And I just want to take a moment now to say, hey, Lord, I'm sorry. Please will you forgive me? And if necessary, we need to go to a person and say, please will you forgive me? And so I'm going to give a moment for all of us just to do that, and then I'm going to lead us in a prayer. Precious friends, the Word of God says that the body of Christ was broken for you that you might be whole. The love of God is expressed to you tangibly through this moment. And the Father wants to remind you how much He loves you, what He's done to position you through this meal. Can we partake in eating the bread together in remembrance of what Christ has done for you and for me? Father, we thank you for your blood which was spilt so that we could be rescued and freed from the works of the enemy which are powerful and real and not only did you rescue us but you brought us into your family through a covenant of love and so Lord this morning we drink of your blood in remembrance of you.